This is Monica Perez, and I am here today with Eric Buchanan, a lawyer and podcaster from Tennessee who has an uncanny ability to lay out constitutional issues from an expert's perspective, but in terms we can all understand. So strap on your tanks. We're going deep with a dive master. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure always to talk to you. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, hey, Monica. How are you? I'm great. I really enjoyed our last conversation. I'm not sure if it was technically on um, for, by, and of the people. Uh, of, of, for, and by. Okay. The people. <laughs> See, that is not cool because I actually always have <laughs> Constitution on my desk. Uh, but yes, so I really enjoyed our conversation, our last conversation. And I, I love, I was just listening to a recent one, maybe the most recent one you did with Clint who my listeners are very familiar with. And you were talking about how the government is structured and the Constitution. And I have one quick question before we get to what I sure. what you're really going to talk about. So I insist that we're not a democracy. I mean, we're a republic, and I would say maybe a democratic republic, a representative republic. Uh, and But you were digging into the way people vote for Congress, and actually should have refreshed my memory. Do you think that qualifies? I Because I always say, like, there's very little specifics about voting in the Constitution. And I just wondered, what do you consider us in a democracy? Would you ever use that as a term of art or slang of what we are? No. <laughs> right. Okay. Simple answer, no. Uh, I, I say we're a constitutional republic. Uh, nice. shorthand is republic. The Constitution actually guarantees every state a republican form of government. The word democracy is not in our Constitution. Um, you, you and I probably at one time were both fans of Neil Boards back in the day. And yes. The quote from the old army training manual from the 30s that told people democracy was a form of government uh, noted by mob rule. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah. gosh. Yes, yes. And I've actually lately thought you know, democracy wasn't even as bad as like pro rule by protest. It's like a flash mob rule, you know, it's just, and obviously that's highly manipulated. But uh, yeah, so just can you remind me in the Constitution, it seems to me the only place that really guarantees an individual a vote is electing members of Congress, or does it not even do that? Uh, it does do that. And, and it says, well, what it says is that legislators will be elected by the people. And then the way that's been interpreted by the Supreme Court is that has to be the same people that elect the state legislators. So it pretty much means you have the right to vote. Um, right. And, then, and then, of course, there's the 15th Amendment that says that everybody has the right to vote. So does it say what that uh, the vote for what? Well, that's a good point. What the vote for what's a good question. But if if you have the right to vote in your state, you have the right to vote. Uh, under the right. Election. So you have the right to vote according to state voting. Like it just right. tells if state the states can set kind of like Roe versus Wade was like the states can set up the parameters. But when you set them up, there has to be equal protection, although the equal protection clause is in the 14th Amendment. Right. Which is what I want to talk about today. Sure. So uh, so. And I also want to talk about some recent Supreme Court cases, but I, I really find the 14th Amendment quite fascinating. First of all, let's just say, so the, 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 the amendments, the Re Reformation amendments, whatever you would call them, was it 1415 and 16 or? It was 13, 14, 15. 13, 16, 14. 16 is the, uh, the income tax, so that's a populist. Amendment. Oh, and 17 makes the Senate 
is a popular, popular. right? Right. That's right. the worst. I mean, de Tocqueville would roll over in his grave. <laughs> so uh, the so okay, and it's my understanding, if I had to put shorthand on it, that those uh, do you call them the amendments of the Reformation or Reformation amendments or what do you call those? Yeah, yeah I mean, I actually heard something I like like just recently that uh, Senator Leahy once called them the second founding amendments. Wow, I thought that was I, I, I can kind of agree with that. Accurate, whether you like, like it or not. Yeah, if so, you think about it, historically, there were 10 originally in the Bill of Rights. The other right. two were very technical federal amendments, yeah. mm-hmm. federalism amendments, and nothing happened until the Civil War. And then the other right. three come along. So that's right. Okay. Idea. And then if I understand correctly, they're uh, because they didn't really let – they disenfranchised a lot of people or whatever. Like if you looked at it technically, some people argue that they were not ratified correctly. Would you agree with that? And then I, I have a follow-up. I have read some uh, academic studies on whether they were adopted properly and whether they were basically under duress. So one argument is that the southern states that uh, supposedly seceded during the Civil War were not allowed to come back in until they had ratified those amendments. Well, one legal argument was if it was illegal for them to secede in the first place, then had they ever actually seceded, if they'd ever actually never seceded, then how could they be told they couldn't be let back in? And it's sort of a whole circular argument about you know, what are we going to do? Another thing I heard recently, I was, I was doing some research on this is basically the 14th amendment would be considered to be the surrender document for the South. There was never a treaty where the Confederacy basically surrendered. They surrendered piecemeal and were conquered by the North. There was never like a treaty of Versailles or a treaty of Paris where they said, here's the terms. So effectively the 14th amendment, and maybe if you say the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments together were the terms by which the Confederacy surrendered and to be readmitted to the union, they had to live by those terms. Okay. Um, and I would say, <clears throat> that's interesting, and I'll have to reread them with that in mind, but I would say I agree with a, the idea that today, if you went around to the states or to whatever the whatever adoption process would be, like absolutely withstand technical scrutiny, if you ask states if they would ratify those amendments there, there's no doubt they all would. Now, of course, I mean, I think that there's no doubt, like you, you could get what you needed for that. But of course, we were shaped by them already. So we're in a post, you know, we're in a post 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment world. So the fact that they consider, we now consider it foundational, fundamental. I mean, it's, what would you call that? It's like almost tautological or whatever. You can't escape the trap. But okay, so I accept it because the other thing is, it's kind of like the UN treaty, which I consider to be totally unconstitutional. The longer you allow it to exist without complaining about it, and the more there is reliance on it, the more you're kind of stipulating that you accept it as the law. Or the, yeah, or yeah. The, I treaties think, that are that expand the power of the Constitution as law, which seems almost like just inherently impossible. But it's it's hard to when you read the Constitution, it's hard to say that's not in there. But but I, but the fact that we've just accepted it for so long, I feel like if we you want to, if, yeah, if you want to get nerdy into a deep dive, then the uh, I think the the uh, 
equitable doctrine of latches now applies to anyone who wants to complain about the 13th, 14th, or 15th Amendments not being properly adopted. The, the, and is that the, when you have to complain? You have to complain before there's like a lot of reliance, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you and I are both lawyers. So, if you don't want to get too into audio, yeah. Just since I read about the latches, <laughs> a statute of limitations basically says you have to file your lawsuit right. by X date within yes, Tennessee's okay. really short one year from the injury, for example. Wow. We've got a really short statute of limitations for personal injury cases. And so, but latches is the statute of limitations hasn't technically run, but you've been sitting around not doing anything for so long that the other party has moved on and they have the right to complain. Well, why didn't you sue me sooner so we could have right. actually looked at the evidence in time and done double right. this sooner? It's the equitable doctrine of, well, there's a de facto statute of limitations too if you just sit around too long. Right. Um, if you want to get too nerdy about what all that means. Oh, I do like the nerdy stuff. But <laughs> so let's let's just accept that it it's good law. And now let me ask you, when you read the 14th Amendment, it's, I think it's just the one, the one that I'm, the one passage, because it's a very long amendment. It uh, is. And I would argue it's five sections for our audience who don't have it pulled up in front of them. But basically, one and five count and the other three are kind of, we're cleaning up the Civil War stuff. Okay. So let me, I'm going to read, if you don't mind, I'm going to read the sure. first section. Sure. This is the one I wanted to talk about. All persons, well, what I really want to say is, let me, before I read it so people can listen to it with this ear, is that uh, the argument is that the 14th Amendment represents a paradigm shift by which the first 10 amendments are incorporated into state law. So, so in, in my understanding, and you can correct me before I even read it if you want, if a state wanted to have a total ban on guns, in their constitution, they could, but the federal government could not. Although I would argue that the Second Amendment is one amendment that actually has a positive obligation put onto the states to have a militia armed by the people, which I actually, I actually, people are like, don't talk about militia. We're just talking about individual rights. I'm saying that I actually think that a militia is required by the constitution. Maybe the only thing, the way like a jury trial is that is like a positive thing the government has to provide you if it's going to step on you. I think they are requiring you to have a militia. But like in the First Amendment, it says Congress shall pass no law. Does that mean that a state cannot pass a law to have a state religion? I would say it could. But prior to the 14th Amendment, then the 14th Amendment, it's interpreted now to say that actually you could not, that it's all interpreted. It's not explicit enough for me, but let's read it and see what, what people so, think. What hey, before you read it, let me yeah. just kind of restate what you just said in a way that I think helped our audience when Clint and I were talking about this. So the first 80 years or so of the United States, from the passage of the Constitution in the early 1790s into the Civil War, people still referred to the United States as our they, yeah. The United States are something. And they were the foundation of the country was that we were actually all these independent colonies that had become separate countries. And you could even argue it was closer to the European Union at first with the Articles of Confederation. And then the Constitution took that a step further and said, OK, we're one country. If you look outward, people are going to say that it's the United States. But within the United States, we're really 13, then eventually 14 and 15. And so many as we had states, separate state, a state is a country and has control over its own laws. And the idea of the Bill of Rights was simply that that federal government that kind of overlaid everything only had certain powers in the main body of the Constitution, but 
further that the, that, the, that the federal government couldn't go beyond those powers and interfere with individual rights, like the right to, of free speech, the right of freedom of the right. press, freedom of religion, now, you know, all of the ones found in the first eight amendments that are in yeah. the Bill of Rights, and arguably some of the other rights that are buried in the Constitution itself that weren't even in the Bill of Rights, like the right to habeas corpus, the right to no mm. ex post facto law. Oh, uh, interesting. Are, are those in cor- do those apply? And so the question is, can a state still violate those rules? And for the first 80 years, the United States really kind of assumed that that was up to the states. If you had a problem right. with your state violating your civil rights, go talk to your state. It's only right. a limit on the power of the federal government. That was yeah. the paradigm shift that you're about to introduce. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's read it and see if uh, textually it does do that and also talk about the originalist and then intention and then <clears throat> how it's been interpreted and then even how it applies today. So Section 1, Amendment 14 of the U.S. Constitution, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, which is really interesting in itself, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall... That's interesting because citizenship just goes with residency, which I think is interesting from from the state level. Uh, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the two things you have to look at is no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, and nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. I'm totally fine with equal protection of the laws. I don't think we need to talk about that right now. But what are the privileges and immunities, right? Isn't that what we're really asking? Well, the, that and what does it mean to deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law? And that's uh, the, I know. So it's, it's those two things that are the modern interpretation. Um, before we get to that, I just want to very quickly, you kind of, through in the uh, people subject to the jurisdiction there. Yes, I think that's just a fascinating question. And, and, and that it also declares that people are citizens of the United States. Remember the context of what happened when this was passed in 1868, that very quickly President Lincoln had been shot, Andrew Johnson takes over, Reconstruction in the South is still just a, a mess. There aren't any solid rules limiting what can happen. And very quickly, former Confederates are reelected back to state legislatures, that the Democrat parties took back over, never gave up power in their states, and they started passing black codes and things like no more than six black people can meet together at night or the black. When was this? This was immediately after the Civil War before the 14th Amendment was passed. In the first couple, three years, states started passing serious black codes that had horrible, you know, know, no black person can own a weapon, no black person can, uh, one state, uh, at least one state had a a rule that said on January 1st, you had to register what your job was going to be for the upcoming year. And if you didn't have a white person certifying what your occupation was going to be, then you were subject to manual servitude on a plantation. Wow. We, wow. Yeah. All, all this kind so of So that's stuff. like treated like illegal immigrants, even though there was no well, country the, to return to. If, if you could, without technically having and slavery. Enslave you. Yeah, enslave you. How could you start wow. it back up under the law? And so Southern states were trying to pull that. Kind of, that shocks the conscience. Of course. I mean, the. That was the South. They did that kind of stuff. That was why we fought a civil war. And yeah. and they were still trying to do that stuff, you know, whenever they could. 
So one of the things that happened, you know, historically was the 14th Amendment was passed to deal with some of that. And then Reconstruction actually consisted of sending Union troops down into the South to actually enforce those rules and make sure that a lot of stuff happened. We can get into what happened on down the road. Oh but part of the gosh. point is... We could get into so much. Like, didn't they yeah. start the DOJ for that, basically? Um, that didn't. That really didn't happen to the 50s because they actually used the military. But they created the DOJ after the Civil War, I think, to enforce laws that could not be enforced under the Constitution, so you couldn't have state nullification. That's my theory, anyway. But that's really just me sliding something in there that would really derail us. (laughs) We have to do a deep dive on the deep dive. Everything. Oh, no. I mean, I think think we're going to have a long and uh, prosperous relation or loquacious relationship. Yeah, we'll have to have a few more of these conversations. But so another point of this was... So people who are, are citizens of the United States have to be citizens of their states. One of the black code rules was African-Americans can't be citizens. And remember that that was what the states were trying to pass, but that was not their idea. Remember what the law of the land was before the 14th Amendment. The um, Dred Scott case had come out before the Civil War, like 1856 or 1857, and Just for our listeners, very quickly, the story of Dred Scott is that there was a slave who was taken by his master from Kentucky, a slave state, into Illinois, a free state, and then across the border into one of the western territories that wasn't a state yet, that was still a federal territory. And so Dred Scott filed a lawsuit to say, I should be considered to be a free man because I was taken to a free state and I was taken to a free territory. And there was even a federal law that said a slave taken to a federal territory shall become free. Wow. And the Supreme Court said, no, that would be a violation of due process to deprive that slave master of his property without the due process of law. And it happens to be the first time that the the, the Article 5 due process clause was ever cited by the Supreme Court to say that a, a, a federal law was invalid for denying somebody of their property without due process of law. And and the other holding of that case was, and African and the actual technical holding was, uh, after saying all that, and essentially dicta, but very strong dicta. And for those of you who, unlike Monica, me are not lawyers, that means the Supreme Court actually said all this stuff that was really important. But then they actually the actual holding of the case, the real law of the land was. Net, but despite all the reasons we've said you lose Dred Scott, it doesn't matter. You don't have standing to bring this case because Africans can right. never be citizens of the United States, so you can't bring a federal lawsuit. What did they base that on? Because From a he was federal African. level. Because he was African. He's not a citizen. They made that rule Did up. they just make that up? Like the they just made that rule yeah. up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because that's not no, in right. here. <laughs> no, it's not in the Constitution. That, that was just how bad the Supreme Court was in the 1850s. Wow, yeah. The majority of the Supreme Court was Southern Democrats. The majority of the Supreme Court, when Dred Scott came out, were slave-holding oh, that Democrats. that would explain a lot. Yeah. Uh, Including, okay. by, including uh, by the way, a guy named Justice Campbell, who later on will come up in our conversation, I bet, because he argued for the slaughterhouse cases. He argued against the 14th Amendment in that case. Was he the one who got impeached? There was one Supreme Court justice. No, he quit to go join the Confederacy. And then after the war, he practiced law, and he spent his career fighting against Reconstruction. Right. Reconstruction, right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we... I know that's a lot, a lot we've thrown out. Was, we yeah, that was, to, we this is one of those ones there. where people are going to have to stop and listen to it again. But that's okay. They... As long as they're not driving. I have gotten some complaints. Like, I had to pull over. I'm like, okay, sorry. So let me summarize this for everybody. The point of the first line 
all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction of our citizens of the United States in the state where they reside was to overrule the Dred Scott decision so that Africans could become citizens, African-Americans would become citizens, people, men of African descent is what they actually said in the, in the, oh, okay. in the, in the Dred Scott case, because it was still just men back then that were citizens, full head, yes, full citizenship right. rights. And that being born in the United States means you get it or naturalized. And what the Supreme Court has later had to get into is the subject of the jurisdiction. Yes. Does, that, does that mean if you're the if you're the child born to uh, let's British say the parents, Me- the British you're subject of the Queen, the, yeah, the British ambassador or the Mexican ambassador or the Somalian ambassador while in the United States, just British citizens. Well, so the answer is that we've I found from Supreme Court cases so far, if you're the son or if you're born to a diplomat who has diplomatic immunity. You don't get citizenship because, because that's not because not subject to the jurisdiction. If you are an immigrant who is here legally, there is a Supreme Court case that says yes, you get birthright citizenship. There is not yet a Supreme Court case that says whether or not an illegal immigrant gets citizenship. There is one Supreme Court case that says we assume you get citizenship, but they don't. The question wasn't actually before them, so there's actually that hasn't been squarely teed up yet. I've been looking for that case, and it's not out there. So, what about? Uh... Native Americans. So originally, Native Americans were not considered citizens because they weren't sub. That's that's actually what they're not, not right? subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Actually, there was a law passed in 1935, the uh, Indian American Citizenship Act, that they have that American Indians were given the option to accept U.S. citizenship. There was some laws starting in the 1870s, and they have dual citizenship because I mean dual- I'm talking about reservations not having to follow federal law. Yes, they have dual citizenship. Right. There, just as an aside, a whole other yeah, a recent Supreme Court case, right? I was reading about the Cabochon Indians in the desert in California, and Wackenhut, I think, was a defense contractor that used to do stuff that was totally illegal um, in federal territory on the Indian reservation before they allowed casinos. The Indian reservations needed money, so they would allow these really sketchy things. And I extrapolate that to stuff that's happening, like when we outsource stuff in China and biological weapons labs or whatever in Ukraine that we're just trying to get stuff out of federal territory that would be illegal. But let's get back to the, I guess it's incorporation, right? So, yes, no state shall make any or first any law which shall be abridged the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And then it goes on to talk about due process and equal protection. Those are the other two but, laws. But to me, do you agree that that clause about privileges and immunities is what's used, I'm just deducing, is what's used to say that the Bill of Rights applies at the state level? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and the reason why, no, this was actually a bar exam question. I remember when I was taking my bar exam question. Uh, are the Do the Bill of Rights apply to the states? Yes. Does, do any of them fall under the Privileges and Immunities Clause? No. Is there a, What wow. is the Privileges and Immunities Clause used for? The answer was nothing. When I took the bar exam, there wow, actually, really? There I took was, the bar around the same time as you. Yeah, and, so I um, probably got. Uh, so, I mean, I should have known that. Yeah. So the the quick history of it is, and this is, I think, it gets really d- a deep dive, kind of interesting. Um, let me say this for those people listening to the news, and obviously, if people are are fans of your podcast, they're probably listening yeah. to the news. Clarence Thomas was recently criticized for suggesting. In the Dobbs case, the case that overturned Roe versus Wade and that abortion is no longer a guaranteed fundamental right and it's returned to the states, what he said in his dissent was, 
we should reconsider whether this also applies to Overfeld, Overfeld. Overfeld and uh, Griswold, and those are the cases yeah. that granted gay that, that get granted a right for gay marriage for contraceptive, yeah. uh, and and even so far, some people have said, well, he's really questioning, say, the Loving case, which is the the right to marry people of a, of a different race. Those were substantive due process cases, and we'll talk about this. They oh, come under God. the next clause of the 14th Amendment that says you can't be denied life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. And what Justice Thomas is on about, he is not saying he wants to get rid of the right to gay marriage or the right to buy contraceptive devices. Or interracial marriage. Or interracial marriage or any of those things. <laughs> Given his situation. What, what he's saying is, if we have those rights, and we probably should have those rights, that the right place to base those rights in the, in the text of the Constitution is the Privileges and Immunities Clause. That sounds great. But that's not the law of the land. But why not? Why? The slaughterhouse cases. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Can't they so, just change it? <laughs> Maybe they were wrong. Maybe the slaughterhouse well, cases were wrong. I think that's what just High-profile um, cases a lot of times aren't high-profile unless they're controversial. So that's I'm I'm on team Clarence Thomas for this one. I right. think he's right. We should overrule the slaughterhouse. The Supreme Court should overrule the slaughterhouse cases. But the slaughterhouse cases basically were just after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment was passed. The first case brought to the Supreme Court to say we have the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States to protect our jobs is essentially what the plaintiffs were arguing in that case. And the Supreme Court basically said, no, that's not what that means. And threw, and threw out that language that would provide the, that the Bill of Rights applied to everybody in the states. And so ultimately what the Supreme Court did starting after that was, was found that the right to due process guaranteed those rights. And then we slowly incorporated those starting in the 1890s and all throughout the 20th century, one right at a time. But you would think, you're right, Monica, I'm with you. You would think that would fall under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Well, I think something would. <laughs> I mean, well, There's one case that happened since you and I became lawyers. And so let's, do you want to talk about the Slaughterhouse case for a second and find yeah, out why sure. that's important? Let me try to do the one paragraph version of the Slaughterhouse cases. Okay. New Orleans was a nasty place. If you've ever read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, that was the cleaned up version of how nasty the slaughterhouses were in the Mississippi really? River. Downtown New Orleans had over 80 The jungle seems like an exaggeration. Uh, New Orleans was worse. Uh, downtown New Orleans had 80 different slaughterhouses, and it was the place where a lot of, if you got your cattle, cows on a cattle drive and drove them east and got them on the railroad to, to the east, a lot of them ended up on the Mississippi River and brought down to New Orleans where the, there was a huge meatpacking industry and a huge meat industry. 80 different slaughterhouses, 300,000 head of cattle a year were slaughtered and thrown into the, the – the parts that couldn't be used were thrown into the Mississippi River. And again, oh. and just as many oh. pigs and that kind of stuff, even oh, more. That's disgusting. Two miles north on the Mississippi River from the big water intake for the Mississippi for – the, for the New Orleans City Municipal Water Supply – and they, it, the New Orleans just absolutely smelled. It was horrible. I mean, but how could that even not be just there a no, devastating no regulation. health yeah, hazard? The, but the regardless city. of regulation, isn't it like, well, everybody's dying now and there's, you know, with green fumes so in the is, air? Remember, this is the mid-1800s. They don't have germ, germ theory yet. But they had they had they miasma really, theory. Miasma theory would have covered really, it, and it really sunk. So the legislature of Louisiana passed a law that basically outlawed individual slaughterhouses and made all the slaughterhouse operators move their 
operations to one location that would be downriver from New Orleans in a not very desirable area. But even worse for the slaughterhouse operators, they couldn't have their companies anymore. They had to basically go become employees of this state-run corporation. So they all lost their jobs, wow. and they had to go. They had to agree to have a job, and that's how the city of New Orleans or the state of New of Louisiana cleaned up the slaughterhouses by with, nationalizing by, them, or whatever by, by like by, by effectively nationalizing them. Yeah, wow. With a state legislator that was one third African American at the time. Hmm. But then you're back. What year was this? Eighteen seventy-two, during Reconstruction, during the time so, period. I was going to ask you, the black laws that you were talking about Got must have yielded because then you had the carpetbagging problem, yeah, that, right? Yeah, right. So the, the, un, the Union Army went down south in, the, in 1867, right. 68, 69, and basically started enforcing the 14th Amendment and other rules. Which was quickly and, exploited by the white carpetbaggers, right? Yeah, and a lot of the white people who had fought for the Confederacy lost their right to vote, and they also right. lost the right to have, say, for example, a law license for a while. Right, and, and that's so, where you get, like, in Gone with the Wind, Ashley was at a Klan meeting. People don't realize that because they don't say that in the movie, but that's what it says in the book. That he was, because, yeah, because, that, because they lost all their rights, and right. they, were, they were upset and wanted to bring it back, and then they were, had all these racist attitudes and all right. that. And so the, Just the made union, everything. Yeah, work. and the Union Army was still, you know, kind of racist, but they were protecting right. these laws. The bottom line care. is... Bottom line is the Republican-controlled Louisiana legislature during Reconstruction wanted to actually do something right, and so they moved all the slaughterhouses out of the city. The slaughterhouse operators had a pretty strong guild, and their lawsuit basically was amongst the privileges and immunities that we have as American citizens is the right to operate our business, that the government can't just come and nationalize our business. And some of these slaughterhouse operators were Creole. Some of them were white. Some of them were black. And the, and the Supreme Court didn't even get into the race of them. Ultimately, what got to the Supreme Court was the idea that does the Privileges and Immunities Clause include my fundamental right as an American citizen to keep my business, or can the state just take it away from me, even if it's for health and safety reasons? And the Supreme Court ultimately says in the slaughterhouse cases, no, privileges and immunities of a citizen are only those very limited rights that you have that are completely based on your citizenship in the federal government. Your right to petition Congress. That can't be true, though, because it talks about the state right there. It's about the state. Oh, okay, I understand. Yeah, I see it. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So what are your privileges and immunities as and a citizen And your privileges, of the uh, essentially these tiny, tiny mm -hmm. little rights, like your right to go to a federal courthouse, your right to vote in a federal election, your right to petition the federal customs house. How about, how about your right to engage in interstate commerce? No. Everything goes no, that, under interstate that, commerce. Not, but that was not one of the privileges and immunities. The privileges and immunities of a citizen of the United States were this very little limited list, the Supreme Court said, in the slaughterhouse cases. And it's such a limited list. So annoying. Because so, they do things narrowly and when they want to, and then they do things like Roe versus Wade when they they want to. This is the same Supreme Court that a few years later decided Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal. In fact, some of the justices were still on that were in, eight, in the 1870s that were on in 1896 when Plessy versus Ferguson was decided. But even though it's about a generation, you know, some of the younger justices 
are deciding the slaughterhouse cases. And the reason I bring up Plessy versus Ferguson is that's an example the Supreme Court just used in Roe versus Wade and the Dobbs case to say there are some decisions that are so bad that you don't yeah. go by stare decisis, you overthrow them. Right. Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, that said that separate but equal, that the equal protection of the laws clause, if a state wants to pass a law that says uh, black people, you have to be in these schools, and white people, you can be in these schools. As long as they're, quote, equal, that's not illegal. And it wasn't until Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 that that Supreme Court case was overturned. So full circle, what Clarence Thomas is now arguing is it's time for the Supreme Court to go back and look at the text of the Constitution and and point out that the slaughterhouse cases were wrongfully decided and that the privileges and immunities of a citizen of the United States include all of the rights that you, we have in the Bill of Rights, all the other rights we have in the Constitution, and maybe other unenumerated rights that have traditionally been found under substantive due process. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot to absorb. It's a lot for me yeah. to absorb. I'm sure it's a lot for everyone to absorb. So... Let's, let's, okay, let's, 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 I want to talk about getting that Bill of Rights into the states. Where does it come from? It's not from the privileges and immunities. Where did that come from? The next clause is what the really? Supreme Court finally started relying on. Yeah. Nor, okay, nor, shall any, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So what Boy, happened, that just seems like a state could do that on its own. See, now I don't buy it. I don't buy incorporations. <laughs> so you have to tell me if you buy it, if you buy it on a textual basis, if you buy it on an originalist basis, and if you buy it on the way it's been decided. But first tell us what, how, how it's read now, how it applies. Yeah, tell us so, um, so what happened was starting in 1890-something, I'll, I'll find the case here in a minute if you want to really get do a deep dive. No, it's not necessary. But the, but the Supreme Court, for the first time, said the constitutional rights that are found in the Bill of Rights might also apply against the states if they're trying to violate those rights. And we'll take a look one at a time and say, okay, yeah, that should that's something the states shouldn't shouldn't uh, be able to do. So, for example, the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. Res right. Uh, respecting the establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or limiting the freedom of the press or a freedom of speech. So the when the First Amendment starts with what? Congress. Yeah, definitely. So for the first 80 years, the United States had no problem saying, if you're a citizen of Alabama, it's up to them to decide if you have free speech or not. Right. If the state of Alabama wants to say you're not allowed to say that, that's not our business. What you what we will promise you is the United States government won't come down to Alabama and tell you you're not allowed to say something. That the Congress. Yeah. Won't how could law. you possibly read the 14th Amendment as deleting the word Congress and inserting the word state legislature? So the original intent that I think is true, that Clarence Thomas is saying is true, is that in that, that second clause, after who is citizens, and it says, uh, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges of immunity of citizens of the United States. Well, citizens of the United States have all the privileges and immunities found in the Constitution. Yeah, that's, that what, I th th that's, that's what I thought it was. That's what most people would think it was on oh, first reading. Oh, but then you would have to the slaughterhouse overturn cases. the slaughterhouse cases. Right, and, so the slaughterhouse cases like, messed all that up. So what, will that happen? It's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. 
And especially with some of the demagoguing that's but, going on about this. But hold on. Okay, so let's just say the privileges and immunities are narrowly read as in the slaughterhouse cases and you leave it there. Somehow, over the years, we've still been incorporating all that stuff through, I guess, the due process clause of this section of this amendment. How did right. they justify that? And and what difference does the slaughterhouse case make then if all that stuff's incorporated by the next clause anyway? So... The first answer to your question is how did they get there? And there were two reasons how they got there. One was the Supreme Court, I think, recognized, and this is kind of, well, actually, I'd say three reasons. One, the Supreme Court recognized that they'd gotten the slaughterhouse cases wrong and the 14th Amendment really did mean that citizens would have the Bill of Rights protect them as against the states. But without overturn, but we can't overturn the slaughterhouse case because that's stare decisis, the same argument that people were just making about Roe versus And that means Blake. already decided, right? It's already been decided. It's the law of the land that the, that the Privileges and Immunities Clause only applies to very limited rights that a citizen has as a U.S. citizen, like the right to go to the U.S. Patent Office or whatever it is. <laughs> only those, those limited rules, right. right. So if, if, if that doesn't apply, then what? is the way that we're going to get there. And and they actually, there's a little technical reason why they think they might have a good point. Yeah. That there was an old tradition of British common law that cited to similar language in the Magna Carta about the law of the land and about due process being guaranteed. And the British scholars, uh, a guy named Coke was a famous, kind of around the same time as Black's Law Dictionary was being written, there was a famous jurist called Coke, and he actually went back during the time of the Stuart Kings, and they were sort of the evil monarchs of the, the end of the British period of monarchy before the, before the British Civil War. And when they were trying to impose very uh, totalitarian rules, the judges at the time said, no, the Magna Carta guarantees us substantive rights under the and that the government has to go through a due process procedure in order to interfere with our substantive rights. And they created this concept called substantive due process as this legal theory back in the 1600s that then circles back around. 200 years later and 250 years later and starts getting cited by the U.S. Supreme Court a little, they cite this, but they come up with this concept sort of also as a response to slaughterhouse cases. And they say, your right to due process under the 14th Amendment is, is really two things. One, it's procedural due process that the court or a judicial system or whatever system has to be fair. You have to have a right to notice that you're going to have a hearing, the right to a counsel, a uh, right to a to, to, to trial. Well, that's a separate right. Uh, right I do not like the plea bargains. I think that that is an inalienable right. But anyway. I think that even in a civil case or an administrative law case, what's the bare minimum of due process? It's notice and opportunity to be heard. It doesn't have to be in front of a jury. It just has yeah, to be I feel in front like of a jury. A decision maker that doesn't have uh, an interest in the outcome of the case. Those kind of fundamental fairness procedural due process, that falls under procedural due process. But then the courts also said, but wait a minute, there's also substantive due process, a limit on the legislature or the state, uh, their limit on the state's ability to limit life, liberty, or property without due process means there's certain laws they can't even pass in the first place. That's the theory that they use to get to the idea of substantive due process means that 
those rights that we have as American citizens in the Bill of Rights also apply to the states. And that started in the 1890s. And, okay, and throughout the 20th century, they've but they haven't incorporated all of them. So you cannot, it's like three strikes your outlaws would violate this due process, right? Uh, procedural or substantive? Substantive. Yeah, so that would that would if you're going to argue that you have a, a liberty right that is substan- substantively protected by the Constitution, it's expressly protected in the Constitution, right? The right to a jury trial doesn't say unless you've already gone to court twice, right? So it depends on twice. okay. So hypothetically speaking, if you if the if Congress passes a law or a state passes a law, let's do it. Let's keep it clear and make it a state passing law. So we'll talk about incorporation and how okay. it works. If a state passes a law that said if you're convicted three times of a felony, the third felony conviction, uh, the sentence shall be life without parole. Right. Right. Are you entitled to a jury trial with a notice of your hearing and opportunity to be represented by counsel at the first trial of the first case? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but like that's – I don't care. Right, but my point is this. So – for procedural so you can just process. make up the process as you go along. It doesn't have to be an objectively fair process. It doesn't well, have that, to be, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like a jury trial, the process is in the Bill of Rights. It should, if it's if it's incorporated, it's incorporated. The process is there. I don't even like mental health incarceration, like being committed against your will without a jury trial. I don't like losing gun rights without a jury trial. I don't like red flag laws without a jury trial. Monica, who was the really famous philosopher who said something about the fact that in hell you get full due process where all your rights are strictly followed, but it doesn't mean you they actually pay attention to whether it's right or wrong? There's there's an actual an old, a famous British philosopher that essentially said that. Well, there's that, also a famous Brit who said that the most important right is the jury trial. Right. So the, what's the minimum requirement for due process to be procedurally correct? And we know it's it's a notice that, that they can't just have a trial. But why are you right? saying that that's what we know? I don't think that's what we know. I, I think I can read the Bill of Rights and say there's more to it than that. Like, I disagree with that, that they can just, just somebody decides. Who decides that? Who decided that? A Supreme Court decision? Yeah, I mean, a thousand years of British common law. A thousand years of British <laughs> common law. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the idea that a, a procedural due process goes back at least to the Magna Carta. No, right. I understand that. that. But, but the specifics of it are limited. So, but remember, there's a difference between procedural due process and substantive due process. Well, what's a jury trial? It's a, a, the right to a jury trial is a type of procedural due process for criminal cases and maybe for civil cases. And the reason I'm saying it that way is because the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court has actually incorporated the right to a jury trial for, uh, for criminal cases, and it applies to the states. But the right to a civil tr- a jury trial in a civil case has not been fully incorporated because states can actually have less than unanimous jury verdicts and less than 12-person juries in right. civil yes. cases. And the Supreme Court has said that's actually not a right incorporated, even though the Seventh Amendment guarantees the right to a jury trial. In federal juries, you have to have a unanimous verdict. In civil cases. Right. It doesn't say. It says in suits of common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined, so no double jeopardy. Then according to the rules— I mean, that's not double jeopardy. I mean, this, is, this is civil in Seventh Amendment. No, I know, but in the Seventh Amendment, okay, not jeopardy, but it says no fact shall be retried. Right. That's the that's race judicata. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. So in six, it says, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Uh, uh, nature and cause of the accusation, confronted with witnesses, compulsory process for obtaining witnesses. Uh, Bill Cosby was denied this. And to have the assistance of counsel. But it doesn't say it has to be unanimous. No, you're right. It doesn't. But the federal. But is that well established that it has to yeah, be unanimous? Yeah, the, the federal common law is that it has to be unanimous. And that's like an old British thing? And that comes from an old British Okay. Thing. So I guess I'm just saying when you say like a thousand years of British common law, which I do respect, has these specifics of process, what are they? They're notice? Notice and opportunity to be heard are the two that are just the, that you start with that. So no are, fly list, totally objective. And then, and then regulatory. Yeah, well, that's that. Okay. So let's, let's, let's cover the basics so the audience understands yeah. it. So, Go ahead. Procedural due process is a notice. Some that they have to make an attempt to tell you you're going to have a hearing where your property or your life or or, or whatever is at, at jeopardy. They have to give you notice that, that, that there's going to be a hearing and you have, a, have to have a chance to respond. A notice and an opportunity be, to be heard. That's the bare minimum. Typically, due process also includes uh, the right to uh, present witnesses uh, the right to uh, have a trier of fact who doesn't have an interest in the case. In other words, it has to be a fair decision maker. And then arguably the more modern trend is to also say that you have to have the right to counsel. So those okay. are, the, are those are the things that are simple procedural due process. So the jury, where does the jury come in? Uh, it doesn't. It's not part of, of common law due process. That's really? an American constitutional thing. But, it's also part but it of was a British thing. Um, yes, it is. It's part of the tradition. The, the, people would say it's part of Brit British constitutional law, but remember, Great Britain doesn't have a written constitution. That's their fancy way of saying, was saying it that. Was in the Magna Carta? It's that way of saying that part of the British common law that's so set in tradition yeah. that Parliament would, would better not overturn yeah. it or they look for it. Was look it in the Magna Carta? The right to a jury trial for certain people is, for criminal cases. In the Magna Carta? Yeah. So right come on. That's not, that's eight hundred years, right? Like we, I think right. we can pretty much say that that is if, right. goes on your list. I'm, I want to put that on the list, Eric. Can but I it do only, that? but it only applies to, to to very to the like lords and other nobility in the Magna Carta. Well, but then you have equal protection and stuff, which incorporates it into the plebes, right? I mean, you've got to say that. You have to say you can't say, well, the right to vote is restricted to white men. Like we are, I think we have to recognize that the rights are fundamental. The equal protection is something that came later, but the list of rights, the list of the process, I think can exist. You know, is uninterrupted. Doesn't change because we incorporated more people into citizenship. No. Well. I think that the British common law would have said for several hundred years that the right to due process, the right to notice an opportunity to be heard, applied to all British citizens. The right okay, so do you feel like... was a special right for okay. nobility. The same kind of people could also claim the right to trial by combat or whatever. That was or the right of, of like seniority or whatever, like where they can right, sleep right, with the, your wife. Right. But um, <laughs> prima nocte. <laughs> is that what it is? So. That's that, yeah. So what about so so there's no incorporation of the jury right into the general public you feel like in the past 800 years of British law yeah, common so there, law or otherwise 
Yeah, it was eventually extended as part of British common law, the right to a jury trial in criminal cases. Okay, so why can't we put this on the on the list? Uh, because it's not something that's guaranteed in all cases in, in America. But what if it's just criminal cases that we're talking about? Yeah, I think you have, yes. Okay, but that's, great. But, but, but that's easy because it's expressly in the Sixth Amendment. Now, how does that apply? No, I know, but I feel like, I so feel the, like, um, you know, red flag laws and stuff are effectively criminal. And you should have a jury trial before they can take your guns away. I think you're oh, well. You well. The question is, is it enough to be satisfied with due process that you should get a notice and an opportunity to be? And heard? I'm saying, I right, want to. Right now, the red flag laws don't even give you notice and opportunity to be heard, which is why I think they're going to be thrown out. Right, 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 right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, but I, but I also feel like it's so. These are. It's such a fundamental right that if you're go if you're being, if you are to lose that right based on your character i mean i think that's what they're saying it's your just, instagram posts by your, yeah but your but your your character is inherently criminal and that's why you're losing this right there's no other reason to lose to allow somebody to lose the rights but i guess we have to save that for another day because that's gonna really get um yeah i think that's a, that's a great conversation it's yeah just, we should definitely i'm writing down all our, our future conversations <laughs> Eric. so let's get back to all right so how did they incorporate so they're looking at the the due process of law, life, liberty. So what they're really saying is life, liberty, property, and due process are all in the Bill of Rights. Therefore, the Bill of Rights are all included. So is it just the Bill of Rights or is it every everything? It's not just it's not even the full Bill of Rights. And it is other things that are in addition to the Bill of Rights. So what the Supreme Court started doing was was picking and choosing. And this, by the way, is part of the criticism of Justice Thomas in the Dobbs in the Dobbs oh, really? dissent or Dobbs concurrence. So what happened is uh, the Supreme Court had a series of cases starting in the 1890s. A, a famous one, Mark, write this one down. We need to have this conversation, the Lochner case, mm-hmm. uh, where the Supreme Court actually so the right to contract is in the body of the Constitution. It's not even in the Bill of Rights. So if you remember from your common law class, if you ever sat down and read the whole Constitution, one of the things mm-hmm. is that is that Congress shall make no law impairing contracts. It's right. not even a bill of rights. It's That's in the one body of the eighteen enumerated, or no? No, it's, well, it's one of the ones that it's not. It's not in the. Oh, in the bill it's of a rights. denial, right? Got it. Okay. Yeah, it's it's in the limit. Mm-hmm. Right, the limits of powers of Congress, for example, along with the fact that they can't have an ex post facto law. Right. Um, so the, those kind of those kind of rules are in the body of the Constitution, and in the Lochner case in 1905, the Supreme Court the case had to do with uh, state law in New York that would limit the number of hours of uh, bakers that bakers could only work certain hours, and the Supreme Court said no, that's abridging the right of people to choose when they want to work, where they want to work, and the right to contract. And if an employee wants to work 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day, that's their right to do that, and the state can't interfere. And so the Supreme Court threw it out. So it was one of the first cases where they relied on this idea of substantive due process, denying your life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The state was passing a law that denied your liberty right to contract, to work freely when you wanted to work. Like prostitution. Like the ability to work extra hours. Yeah, but I mean, they That's should. Simple, yeah. It's a little squishy because you, they, lots of states say that you can't contract to be a prostitute. But uh, so, I, you know, they definitely <clears throat> limit how, 
I guess because of like the Tenth Amendment, whatever. So, that, but then the Supreme yeah. Court actually starts incorporating some of the other express bill of rights. And but then in the 1930s, they throw out the Lochner case and they say that economic rights are not one of your liberty rights. It's only those rights found in the Constitution or non-economic liberty rights. And that's when they start doing things like, well, the Loving case, which is the one about uh, marriage uh, between different races, was actually mm-hmm. based on equal protection more than it was substantive due process. Um, but Griswold was the first one to squarely find a right not expressly written either in the Bill of Rights or in the body of the Constitution right. and to say that we as American citizens have the right to privacy. Right. And that privacy right is basically built into the penumbras and emanations of the oh, Bill of Rights and the rest Lord. of the and rest of the Constitution, <laughs> and therefore the state of Connecticut cannot outlaw the sale of contraceptives to private individuals. But you're not allowed to grow pot in your backyard. Like it's just so it's just the hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy. It's just inconsistency demonstrates. I think that this is has nothing to do. It's just policy decisions. That's the whole other episode I would love to have because this is actually <laughs> part of the criticism of Justice Thomas that he says, we're, first of all, we're starting from the wrong place. Remember, we're not supposed to be using substantive due process to determine what the other rights are that we have as Americans. The founding fathers, those people who wrote the Constitution, including those founding fathers that was the Congress in the 1860s during the second founding of America after mm-hmm. the Civil War, when we went through this whole paradigm shift and became a country yeah. that we're going to guarantee individual rights to Americans everywhere, the 14th Amendment says all citizens have the same privileges and immunities and the states can't get in the way. That should have been the guarantee we should have been yes. discussing these other rights under. Yeah, But I instead, agree. we have this whole history of starting with the slaughterhouse cases, and I think they were like 18, 1872 or 75, Gosh. something like that, that ever since then, we're not allowed to use privileges and immunities. There's only well, one time the Supreme Court has used that, and that was in 1998. And they said, this is one they actually said was interesting. The right of a citizen to move to a different state and be treated as a citizen of that state is one of the rare privileges and immunities. And so if you remember the case where California passed a law that said if you moved to California, you had to wait a year before you could get California welfare benefits. Otherwise, California had to only pay you uh, what your welfare benefits had been in your previous state of residence. That is That case was thrown – the Supreme Court threw out that California law and said the right to interstate travel – and to change your state citizenship is one of those rights of a U.S. citizen found in the Privileges and Immunities Clause that fits within the list that was given in the Slaughterhouse case. And so that one is protected. But all the other rights that we have, rights of freedom of speech, but freedom that's of assembly. Expressed. Expressly in the 14th Amendment, it says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Right, but they actually relied on privileges and immunities because the slaughterhouse case had given the list the right to go to the patent office, the right to go to visit Congress, the, oh, right, oh. the right to go to a customs house. Those were the rights of a citizen, not the right to a job, not the right to free speech, not the freedom of religion, not the peaceably assembled, not the, any of them. Those were not the rights of a U.S. citizen that were guaranteeing the Fourth Amendment according to the slaughterhouse cases. That's how stupid the slaughterhouse cases are. Digging deep into the slaughterhouse okay. cases is a, so, is a whole so here's the great, ana- great analysis it's, of this. It's like a big 
knotted mess, all these Supreme Court cases that interpret the Constitution. And that gets me back to the fact that I do not like, and it wasn't dicta, right, Marbury v. Madison. Like they say out of nowhere that the Supreme Court gets to decide what's constitutional and what's not constitutional. It did not go to the actual, like, um, and substance wasn't that, of that Wasn't case. that technically dicta? Yeah, that was dicta in Marbury versus Madison. Oh, dicta, yeah, it was dicta. Yeah, right. it okay. was, and why was it dicta? Because it had nothing, it wasn't, they resolved the issue of the case without resorting to that decision. They didn't have to rule on that. They threw it in there and they, it's used yeah. as precedent, but it's not, that's not really precedent in my opinion. Right. So they actually they actually ruled in Marbury versus Madison that the guy claiming that he had the right to his magistrateship didn't have standing to bring it. Well, they should have started with that and then thrown the case out. Right. Same as right. Dred Scott saying that Mr. Yes. Scott didn't have standing, but all the other stuff that Dred Scott case said was all dicta. But it's all stuff that's been relied on for. Yeah. For, so so it seems to me that Marbury v. Madison made up this this role of the Supreme Court that is not in the Constitution to rule on the functioning of one of the other branches. And that, to me, goes to that actually recourse for unconstitutional congressional law is nullification by the states, which is why I think they brought in the Department of Justice in after the Civil War, because I think they they I think the South still was using nullification. And they wanted to, and because there's no mechanism in the Constitution to enforce congressional law. There's no mechanism. So to me, it feels like, why is the Supreme Court ruling when there's no, there's no federal police force? There's, you know, there was none of that stuff. They, states simply were trusted to enforce congressional law. And the Supreme Court was ruling on it to make sure, you know, I, you know what I mean? It's a little, yeah, it seems I, I, made up and, and it violates checks and balances and it requires some kind of interstate enforcement mechanism or federal enforcement mechanism, which isn't there. I don't like it. And, it, and all this complication is a, is a, just demonstrates that it, like there's no mechanism to correct it when it's wrong. So the, the, my pushback would be that I, I think Marbury versus Madison's dicta is essentially the law of the land now because of yes it's, it's too late to complain about it it's everybody's it's accepted latches. And that the court <laughs> it's latches that the court has the power of judicial review um but i think it does accomplish what the founding fathers were trying to do which is the idea that congress passes laws the executive the president enforces the laws and that the judiciary determines the validity of laws which was the common law that was the way it worked. The role of courts going okay. back forever. That was well established. So that that's why well Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson is the one who won in Marbury versus Madison. Like it was in his favor to have the Supreme Court rule in this way. But you're saying that's consistent with common law that so that it probably was an originalist intention, even though they didn't put it in textually. Maybe it was so obvious. Yes, I think so. Wow. And I and I, and I think that's what the Supreme Court actually was citing to that. See, I'm a textualist because I just can read it. <laughs> that's all I can do. It's very easy to be a textualist because you can just read it. The originalist is a lot more complicated. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I, I but I I think this is one of those situations where if we if we didn't have that. Uh, yeah, we might have states being able to nullify stuff, but at the end of the day, when the when the federal government wants to do whatever horrible stuff, move the Cherokee Indians, did not you know pass the Alien and Sedition Act, 
whatever bad decisions the federal government makes or the Congress makes, you need to have a Supreme Court that protects our rights. And I actually am a big fan of a lot of the substantive due process uh, incorporation rules. And, and you think about some of the other ones we've left out are all the criminal ones, like the Miranda case, the right to have your right. Yeah, yeah, there are Griswold, lots of good ones. Uh, um, the 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 uh, what's the one Gideon is the one that you have a right to counsel. Is it the right to counsel in the Constitution? No, I think it's in the. I don't think the right to counsel is in is expressly in the Sixth Amendment, is it? Not in the sixth. I thought it was. Maybe it's the sixth. Because the, so, like Gideon was the yeah, case. yeah, yeah. Had the assistance of counsel for his defense. Right. If you, right, you can have one. No, good, good luck hiring one. Oh, but you're saying to that they should pay for yeah, it. Yeah, Gideon was the case that said that right. the government. But they should provide, because they're the ones who put you serious, in jeopardy. Right, if you yeah. face a serious charge, you have that the government has to provide you an attorney. Otherwise, they can that's use the one, that's the one with persecution. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. So that's, I remember Neil Bortz once said, "Well, if they want Obamacare, they should make an amendment like." that gives you jury protection, but I'm like, or counsel protection, but I'm like, no, the reason you get protection, the reason like the one thing government should pay for is competent counsel because they are the ones with the power to put you in serious jeopardy for political reasons. And they are more empowered to do so if they think that you can't defend yourself. I actually think the exorbitant cost of lawsuits right now is a way to make sure that you can't fight back against bad law. Okay, so you think that it's totally valid. To, see, because I wish that our culture, that it was culturally entrenched rather than your way of like courts de deciding on that stuff. My way where the states are in the habit of nullifying congressional law all the time. Like I'd be, I'd be happier for that. But I guess that's more of like an Articles of Confederation era thing, which I definitely want to spend an hour with you on that. So you do you you prefer it this way? You do not. You would you prefer it this way? You like the Supreme Court judging congressional law? And what would have been the enforcement mechanism? Um, well, ask Andrew Jackson because he moved the Cherokees out to Oklahoma anyway, and he said, you know, what army they're going to use to enforce this? Kind of quoting, uh, was it Napoleon that originally said that? Um, you and what army? <laughs> yeah, that was essentially yeah, what army are they going to do? That ultimately our system of laws, that we are a nation of laws, that we respect the, the rulings of the court, it it kind of is a house of cards, Monica, that we are – this is one of the problems with all the attacks on our institutions these days, that it's the yes. faith and trust in our institutions yes. that make this work. When the Supreme Court says that blank is true or blank is not true, they don't have anybody to go enforce that. They have to trust the executive branch to follow the law as announced no. by the court and if the president wants to act in bad faith like Andrew Jackson did with the Cherokee Indians or like with, with like some of the laws having to do with the border in the last few years Trump spending the money on the border wall probably I think was a problem Biden not enforcing the limits on border on the border entry is a problem those kind of things that's that's where we where it starts to break down if the president chooses not to enforce what the Supreme Court said yeah then who's going to make them well I have to I have to say that goes to something that I've really been worried about lately. Maybe you can help me articulate it. But I, so my philosophical bent, again, like I'm very black and white. It's very easy for me to get my mind around math problems. So everything's binary to me. And I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I, or I shouldn't even say that anymore because they completely destroyed capitalism. So that word means nothing. So I guess I'm just someone. Don't let me take it away from you. 
I like, oh, okay. Well, I just, I don't like what the, you know, the modern monetary theory has destroyed the concept of capitalism. They've made it, and financial capitalism, but that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, as far as, uh, free market entrepreneurship and all of that, a hundred percent, to the point where I think society is self-ordering. Oh, as when you say, say anarcho-capitalism, I picture that episode of Star Trek where Captain Kirk tells that that planet that he wants the feds get a piece of the action. Did you ever see that episode? It's the, the least libertarian show and one of my favorite shows. Anyway, right, it, it, it is. It, but there's the episode where they get to the planet that was like an early industrial revolution when some. Oh yeah, there, and he's a mobster, and they, right? And they come back, and it's like it's 1920s Chicago over yeah. the whole planet right yes that's, yes and, and that's a narc that's what i, I picture a narco capitalism is that plan i i don't like the way i think of it is when i was a waitress so i was a waitress and i made two dollars an hour and uh reagan passed a law or whatever signed a law that um taxed me based on what they guessed i made so my 99 dollar paycheck went down to zero overnight after taxes and all I made then, all I took home at the end you were of the day. You did to get 20% tips or something like that? Is yeah, that or 15%, which was, this is my point, it was 100% accurate. I don't, I don't care about that law particularly, but I'm just saying I made nothing on my paycheck. Zero. My paycheck was zero all the time. But I had a pile of cash at the end of the week that was given to me by customers who were not required to do it. It wasn't on the bill. It was 15% of the bill that they gave me because they didn't want to be embarrassed in front of their friends or whatever. I couldn't call a cop. I could yell at them. I could embarrass them. But I was waitress for seven spit years. Spit in their hamburger? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I could. I could. Well, it would be too late for that. I wouldn't even know. I mean, unless they came back and I did know. But for seven years, I mean, I can't even remember. I mean, really full time. Uh, I can't even remember being stiffed more than once or twice, maybe once or twice, deservedly, because you forget about a table when it's really busy. But I would say almost never was I ever, ever, ever tipped unfairly. Maybe a little bit light, 12% for the olds. But um, so there was a, a mechanism there to enforce that behavior, which was social and not legal. And I, so I believe that, I do. But, um, but, I also feel like we're nowhere near that for whatever reason, because maybe it's not true, it's not realistic, or people don't want it, or um, we've lost all the power because of the technocracy, or, you know, I don't know why, but right now I have zero expectation that we're moving towards a stateless society in my lifetime. And given that, I accept... I'm not, I don't consent to the contract. I don't consent to be governed, but I accept as a compromise, I would accept the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and all these institutions and processes that were set up as a compromise. So like the Bill of Rights was a literally a negotiated compromise. You ha they, they put it in there and they wouldn't have gotten people to accept it Maybe I'm completely wrong about all of this. The way I think of it, though, and you can correct me when it's important, but is that after the revolution or when people were engaged or whoever they had to get signed on board, you know, they didn't get Patrick Henry, but they got enough people so that they could uh, give us what they said was a compromise. We will give you self-limiting but absolute government, like or a monopoly on government that will limit itself because we're incorporating checks and balances in here from state to federal, from legislative to executive to Supreme Court, and include the Bill of Rights. So when I see all this stuff, 
And then that concept is upon which all of the nuances of process and stuff were built. And I will say, functioned very well. Now, there's an incremental steady decline in liberty, I would say, kind of like after the Civil War or between the Civil War and World War I, I would say like that was the arc. So if you look at, or the Fed, the Fed was probably the moment. So if you look at the price of milk in 1800 versus 1900, it's like almost flat and wages went up a little bit. But if you look at the price of milk from 1900 to 2000, it's like this and wages are like that. So something went wrong, but that's a very incremental thing and they gnaw away at it. And, and it has to be incremental because otherwise we would notice and we haven't really noticed to the point where people will rebel because the institutions, the processes, all of that stuff on the margin seem to work for us. So when there's an election and like... Nixon maybe knew that he had lost unfairly to JFK. He didn't fight it. He said, I'll live to fight another day. I don't want to undermine this. I believe he said that. Maybe maybe it's a misquote, but I think he said, I'm not going to make a stink about this because I care about this country. And as much as I dislike him, some of his hidden audio makes me think he did actually care about the country in his way. Uh, so, so they wouldn't do that. And then something really major happened. And I attribute it, like I say the point was 2000 when Gore, uh, made a stink about the hanging Chad. But then in 2004, there were Diebold voting machines in Ohio. And then 2008 was the Kenyan birth certificate or ACORN or whatever things that made Obama illegitimate. And then, it's almost like they set that stuff up. So Trump had in was going to be the Russian interference. Hillary was going to be illegal immigrants. Ted Cruz was going to be his birth to Canadian parents in Canada. So there were there's all this illegitimacy that's now built up, or you have protests, or uh, the perfect example. Perfect example is January sixth. People were there to support the senators in going through a process to question the certification of those electors. And I was following that very closely and I expected, and some experts expected that process to last three days. And I even looked at the, when it happened last time and uh, there was an investigation that took a week or two and then the presidential candidates and the parties negotiated a compromise. It was a North-South thing. I forget which, which president it was. 1976, Tilden versus Hayes. Yes, Hayes. And uh, so I was really prepared for this process and then this January 6th thing, which was, I'm going to say, unequivocally created out of whole cloth. You can, all this stuff is not, I, I was following it closely. I saw a lot of video from that day. There was just the people who saw even the Ashley Babbitt thing. So whatever you think about that, I am saying that the outcome of whatever happened, PSYOP or real, on January 6th was to interfere with the process that would have resolved the issue of the election and who, what happened, Mitch McConnell comes out in the middle of the night and says, oh, we're not going through the process because mob. And then you see that all over the place. Boris Johnson, the uh, Draghi in Italy, Sri Lanka. You, you just see like, oh, well, some people made a stink, so I'm just resigning. Or, um, oh, the mob, so we're going to swap this guy for that guy. And it really alarms me that, they are undermining process because as much as, I mean, I am an anarchist and I accept short of that, pro the process that we had, it was working. It was really working. And I feel like it's being undermined from the top because they want to implement this global technocratic totalitarianism. So uh, do you 
do you see that when you say you see that trend of undermining process and institutions, where do you think it's coming from? And do you agree with me that it's manufactured for the benefit of the people who are stimulating it? Great question. Have you read uh, Stephen King series? Which series? The Stephen King, the whole series about the, the gunslinger. Stephen King, no, I stopped reading him a while ago, but that sounds like it's up my alley. It's 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 there's semi science fiction and there's they they include bits and pieces of his other books. It's kind of like his it's like the home universe that his other stories are spun off of. But there's the point of it is that there is a bad evil force out there that is attacking the tower that is the central place around the which holds the universes together. And there's, uh, they're gathering people with with psychic 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 powers. They gather these people from all these different universes and suck them into this one place where they're using them to tear down the the cords of power that are holding the universe together. It's essentially the 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 devil, Satan, whoever it is, is wanting to tear down the like break the cords that hold everything together and create chaos. That's the background story that this gunslinger hero is is trying to fight, um, and it incorporates a whole bunch of different Stephen King universes and and, and stuff. But the the idea of breakers breaking down the the cords of tension that are holding this tower up, and if you break enough of them, it's going to come falling over. That's the analogy that I feel like is going on. That there are people who are attacking our systems and our institutions with the hope of, of toppling it. Are some of them the World Economic Forum globalist elite technocrats? Yeah, those people would love to see America crumble. Are some of them the, the, the woke lefty liberals who want to get rid of the Constitution because somehow utopia is going to magically appear? Is it the socialist libertarians, not the real libertarians, the socialist libertarians, which essentially their their philosophy is that if we tear, have a revolution and tear down government and tear down on institutions, that we're going to have this this fair and utopian... Yes, like anarcho-syndicalists, I think it was like the, yeah. the red so anarchists. Yeah, so there's all these different people out there that would love to see uh, America fail because they either wrongly believe there's some utopia that's going to arise from the ashes or that they have some idea, you know, some goals that they're going to be able to be in power after all this. I think they're all wrong. I think if the, if they collapse America, that the world's going to be a much worse place, that freedom's not going to have a home anymore, and that there's not going to be a, a, a country to aspire to for the rest of the world to look at. Right. And, the, and the people who are even the like rich people in Europe that would love to see this happen, I don't think they're going to want to be in that world where they've, they've caused America to collapse or become one world government. Are all those people working together? I don't think so. I just right. think there's a lot of different forces that are putting pressure on the American system. And the part that worries me is there are ordinary Americans who have become disenchanted because they keep hearing this propaganda. We're really a democracy, and the Senate is not very democratic. We're really a democracy, and the Supreme Court is standing in the way of democracy. Well, the same Supreme Court that maybe took away a right that you were concerned about or, or ruled a way that you didn't like is the same Supreme Court that guarantees us the right to a jury trial, that guarantees us the right to counsel, that guarantees us the right to, to have the judicial system work the way it's supposed to work, that guarantees Guarantees all of our other rights that are in that are in the Constitution: the right to freedom of speech, the right to be able to put a 
the word fuck on the back of your jacket when you're saying fuck the draft when you go to into a courthouse. That's your right of free speech. Supreme Court supported that. The right to protest those things that are unfair, those things that are oppressive, those things that are totalitarian. And I, and so I think my answer to my response to your original question, I'm not a anarchist or any or or an anarcho-capitalist. I am a libertarian who thinks the founding fathers got it right. Now, some of the things we didn't live up to right away, women having the right to vote, African-Americans having the right to vote, the Equal Protection Clause, I think the 14th Amendment, back to bring this all back home, was an important establishment of the America that we really tried to establish in the first place. And it took the Civil War to work out the fact that we had to get rid of those old medieval institutions like slavery and real big class distinctions to get to the modern world. But the founding fathers got the ball rolling in a world that was still more medieval than it was modern. When the founding fathers were writing the Constitution in the 1780s, the majority of countries had slavery. There were hardly any factories. There were no mass Yeah, do you think like Ben Franklin, the great seer, anticipated the Industrial Revolution? Because it was definitely on the precipice. Yeah, I mean, he'd been in London a lot, and there was already some stuff going on. And the transition from that agrarian to the merchant, all that. Yeah, and that was happening in places. That was already happening in Great Britain to some extent. But the more important part is the fundamentals that are in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution – I think, have withstood the test of time. And the one thing that they did right was, if you look at the world where they were created, the world where those aspirations were written down and we said we're going to live up to these, we couldn't do it right away in that world, in a world where most countries still had slavery. It took us a while to get rid of it. We could, we had to do the big compromise to get the to get the Declaration of Independence done. We had to take out the anti-slavery clause so that the southern states would join. Otherwise, we would have fallen apart and never gotten our independence from Great Britain. And it would have taken, maybe even taken longer to get rid of slavery in all the colonies. Who knows what would have happened? So those are the things that got the ball rolling. My position is the more that we read the Constitution textually and with an ear, if we can't quite figure out from the text, what were they originally talking about? That's that's the way I break it down. It the idea is they established a limited government with all these checks and balances, and it's as close to freedom under a social contract as we can have. That, that works. And that's what we need to keep fighting for is to have that functioning social contract that provides as much freedom as possible. Do you, do you read the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist for originalist um, perspective? Yeah, I think you, I think that's fair to do. I think it depends on the issue you're actually looking at. Right. Um, I, I kind of, I think Clarence Thomas has it right that at this point, Question number one, let's, what does the text say? Which is kind of where you yes. were at the beginning, right? Yeah. The idea that privileges and immunities clearly... But you're right. This says, one's hard to understand, though. The right. 14th Amendment is kind of hard. You would because want to see the Because we immediately got rid of... Because there was a, an anti-textualist reading of this in order to limit the changes after the Civil War at first. And it took... A, that's why it took so long. Oh, that's the, very interesting. For the, for the that changes would explain. to take place. That's that why they explain. did it that way. Yes, yeah, because I was thinking, why were they not clearer? Because I do think it is. Because these grumpy nine men on the Supreme Court in the 1870s yes. didn't want America to change yes. that quickly. They wanted to very but much limit the rights given to these new freedoms. You answered my question. That's I mean, really, a question I've had. 
yeah. for so long is that, you know, why isn't the text so explicit, so expressed that you could not possibly misunderstand it? And I because guess something as clear as privileges and immunities didn't mean what everybody thought it meant when it right. got in front of the nine or, men. Some of them still Southerners. Because the people who wrote the text were, or the people who were coming to an agreement on what the text should say, really did not have like a, were willing to write something that could be interpreted because they themselves couldn't couldn't make it super wordy, super, super specific, and still have uh, you know, it be broad enough to encompass the existing law, how it might be interpreted, the the factions underway. That's very interesting. I'm really gonna take that little mind vitamin and walk around with it for a while to inform the way I think about 14th Amendment. And I, I would like to ask you two questions. One or three, shoot, if we can do this. Did it go do away with uh, the 10th Amendment? Um is there anything else you want to say about the 14th Amendment? And then I want, I never asked you to tell the listeners about yourself. So we'll have to do that in the end, which is probably a better place anyway. So does it eliminate the 10th Amendment? Um, is there anything else you want to say about the 14th Amendment? So I think you have to read the 9th and 10th Amendments together. Uh, and essentially that they, that those two amendments together limit the federal government's ability to take away rights of individuals and the rights of the states, except as expressly stated in the Constitution. That One way to look at them is, if nothing else, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments start out as a roadmap to the construction. How do you read the Constitution? And they say stuff like all the powers herein granted in, in Article 1, that list of things that Congress has authority to do is the express and limited list that Congress can do. And Congress can't go off of that list. And the Ninth and Tenth Amendments read together pretty much support the idea that Congress tries to pass a law of, about marriage, for example. That's not on the list of things yeah, they can regulate. Police powers well adjudicated. I'm going to read the ninth and tenth because they're so quick. Yeah. Uh, the ninth is the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And I actually always thought like the rights in there are generally rights that they anticipate the government might violate for its own interests. But you like walking around your own house naked and the millions of other rights that you could say you have aren't relevant to limiting a government. And that's why I feel like it's good that they wrote this. The enumeration of rights is not should not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The the rights that are retained by the people are are innumerable. So uh, or they're just simply don't touch me or my stuff, depending yeah, on how you put an asterisk that. right there for a second, because when you get done reading 10, I want to circle, I want to kind of close the loop okay. on something you brought up earlier. Okay. The powers, this is 10, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Powers not delegated to the, to the U.S. by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states, delegated to the U.S. nor prohibited by it, by the Constitution to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Yeah, so the, the Ninth Amendment, I think, is the more important one when it comes to the idea of the incorporation of the rights of the Bill of Rights and... The other big question that we haven't dug that far into is how do how's the Supreme Court supposed to determine what the other rights are that were preserved under the Ninth Amendment, and then as incorporated by the Privileges and Immunities Clause, if read properly, or substantive due process, if read the modern way, 
are there other rights not enumerated that the Supreme Court should protect that the states and the federal government can't get into? And the Ninth Amendment tells us absolutely there have to be yes. So what are they? Well, and here's the part we didn't get a chance to circle back to. One reason that there's a problem, according to Justice Thomas and other scholars, with not following the Privileges and Immunities Clause is because it actually had an historic meaning that would help inform that debate that substantive due process does not. John Locke, in his Treatise on Government, actually used the phrase privileges and immunities to describe those rights that we maintain that we did not cede to the government when we formed the social contract. So all of the rights that we have as free people. So if you remember John Locke, you start out in the state of nature. We're all free people. The problem with being a state of nature is you don't have any collective laws to help protect us. So what stops your neighbor from murdering you? What stops your neighbor from coming over and robbing your cave and stealing your spouse or whatever? You know, there's until you have those laws. But we enter into a social contract. What essentially what Locke would say is what are the minimum laws we need? To live as a society, what are those things we cede to the government? Well, I can't kill somebody anymore. I can't steal from somebody anymore. So we need police and courts to decide if somebody is guilty of murder or theft. But that leaves this whole laundry, not just a laundry list, just a whole imagination of the other rights that we have as free people that we don't have to cede to the government in order to live together. That was the whole idea of John Locke, and he actually used the phrase privileges and immunities. And so if you look at what what Congress did when they wrote the 14th Amendment in 1868 – and the fact that the Ninth Amendment was already on the books, that there's those rights that are that are protected even if they're not enumerated, that there is a source for the Supreme Court to protect other things. Now, would that list include gay marriage? Would that list include abortion? Would that list include uh, the right to contraceptives? Does that list include the right to be a prostitute, the right to gamble, the right to uh, grow and smoke pot, grow, grow your own? Drugs and right and 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 do it in the privacy of your own home as long as you're not putting someone else at risk. Those kind of things, and I think that's where the libertarian argument actually exists under the Constitution that those things are absolutely true and should be protected. And so, when Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas is currently being criticized, all the the, the statists are in an uproar. They they're just totally upset because they're afraid that his his concurring opinion in the Dobbs decision from a couple of weeks ago that says we need to revisit the Griswold case about contraception in, in uh, Connecticut or the Obertfeld case about gay marriage, he's not saying get rid of those rights. That's what right. really pisses the disingenuous yeah. articles and stories you're right. hearing from the left right now is that he's saying those rights are, are to be challenged. That's not what he's saying. I mean, saying. he obviously can't literally think loving should be overturned what he's, what he's saying and he's right there in his right there in his concurrence is substantive due process doesn't work for the same reason you were struggling with this monica it's not what the damn constitution says the constitution guarantees this procedural due process fairness but in the line before that, it guarantees all citizens of all states the same privileges and immunities across the whole country. That means the Bill of Rights, including the Ninth yeah. Amendment, which includes those rights not enumerated. So Slaughterhouse was absolutely that, disingenuously narrow. That's exactly right. And so what Justice Thomas is, is all about is we need to reconsider the Slaughterhouse cases and nice. actually 
find all these <laughs> find all these rights that we have properly under the privileges and immunity wow. laws. That's amazing. Like I really wouldn't have thought of his widely criticized concurrence as being potentially because, expansive. Because it's that good and people don't like it. And people started trolling and looking me. for an excuse yeah. to say that he's got he's a he's it's the same people that when you when you tell them you're a libertarian, they go, Oh, you mean you're a fascist? Because they don't understand oh what it, means, it used right? to be. Uh, you mean you're a libertine? Like yeah. it just changes. They just want to. Because I know when people hate libertarians, I don't know whether they're conservative or liberal. I'm like, I don't know. Like people give me dirty looks. I'm like, I don't. I don't even know why you hate me. But whatever. You obviously, you know, it's. I'm just not saying what you want to hear. What you need to hear. So wow, that was great. Jeez, Eric, you're. I just love it because you're like a computer. But like, you know, you have all the information, but we can just uh, elicit it organically. I just love it. It's so fun. Um, yes, I so, am a constitutional nerd. That's Yeah, I mean, no, it's just fantastic because I yeah. just love uh, the, the, you know, I love your neural net. So please tell people about what you do and both like professionally if you want and but also for how they can listen to more from you. Sure. So... Uh, I have a law firm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's Eric B. Cannon Associates. We have six attorneys, and we do a nationwide practice of helping people who've been denied disability insurance benefits. So somebody, if you have a policy through work or a policy bought on your own, that if you can't work or you have to reduce your work because you got sick or injured, it doesn't have to be on the job. It can be cancer. It can be something else horrible. It can be you're in a car wreck. It doesn't matter. But if it's affected your ability to work and you have a policy either through work or on your own and the insurance company is not paying you the benefits under that policy, we will fight the insurance company and we will take them to court if necessary. We do that all over the United States. We work with local counsel. We've done it in almost all 50 states. I can't think of a state we haven't done it in. It's, it's most of them. Well, I know people who have had that problem. So it's great to know that there's somebody out there that can yeah. reach across state lines also. Now, having said that, my background, I love doing this constitutional law stuff. Uh, I was a history major in college. I went to the Virginia Military Institute. Uh, I was commissioned in the Navy in 1989, and I flew uh, P-3s in the Navy at the end of the Cold War, chasing Russian submarines around the Arctic Circle in the Mediterranean, uh, and uh, did that for five years. Then I went to law school at Washington and Lee. Uh, among other things, I was uh, the constitu my constitutional law professor asked me to be his research assistant because I liked con law so much, and he could tell that I did. And my con law professor was Dean Bazanson, who was Justice Blackman's law clerk when Roe versus Wade was written. And I, wow. So you're so like the grandchild to, of the, the intellectual grandchild. So I'll, I'll jokingly, we would say behind his back that he must have gotten a girl pregnant that summer in Washington. Oh That's God. why the decision came out that way. But that was. <laughs> oh, that is low. But I wouldn't put it past them. So, you know, he, wow. In all seriousness, he was a brilliant guy. He asked me yeah. to be. And I actually spent uh, a year, cool. my uh, my third year in law school, doing research for him, and he was doing a book on the First Amendment. So that's how I got all nerdy. Wow, we wow, what credentials you have! That's super awesome. And then, how can people listen to you? All right, so uh, I do a podcast with Clint Powell. Our main podcast is of, by, and for the people. We come out Mondays at ten thirty Eastern time, and we discuss current events in the context of Constitution American history. Uh, we regularly have uh, a guy on named Matt Durham, who's uh, also a PhD candidate and works hard to listen to people across the aisle, to work to hear people who've come from different political and religious points of view to try to get them to have communications. 
the three of us, I kind of have the libertarian point of view. Clinton has the conservative point of view. Matthew has the liberal uh, point of view. But he's become more libertarian the longer we've been doing the conversation. <laughs> I take credit for that, too. I've done a lot of shows with Clint. Yeah. And so the three of us try to get together every Monday at 1030 to talk about current events and, and kind of some big trends in American history and the Constitution. And then on Tuesdays, Clint and I do a deep dive into the Constitution. We've been going line by line. We started with the wow. Bill of Rights. We finished the first 10 amendments, and we're working our way through Article 1, which is the section right now, the section that describes the powers of Congress. That's super cool. And that's uh, in the, because I listen to you on iTunes, and that is like a, a subcategory of, of by and for the people, right? Yeah, by and for the people has the Monday show and the Tuesday show. Both have the same name. Monday shows current events. Tuesday show is digging our way through the Constitution. Right. Yeah. Up, if, you, if, you, if you go to where you get your podcast and, and look up Clint Powell, that's another yes. way to find us. Yes. And you'll find his podcast. Yeah, it was easy for me to find. Yeah. I found it. And you know what? You need some reviews. I gave you five star, but Thank if people you. just subscribe and then click just. Give them five stars. You don't have to write anything. It just yeah, helps them push up on the search engine. Would love for people to come listen. Thank you for doing the review. We now have at least one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to tell people because it's important yeah. for the search engine. It doesn't matter about people who are looking to listen. That, that's less important than just putting it out, out there. Because you do a lot of work and it's really good and it's research and um, it's unbiased. Like you don't have an agenda to push. Obviously you have a libertarian bent, but that's probably what's necessary to really understand the constitution. I, I will admit we do have an agenda. And my agenda is to help people learn about the constitution and American history, because yeah. I'm a little tired of all those people that are out yeah. there attacking our institutions and trying to tear the system down without understanding what they're doing. It's the old Overton fence rule. If you don't know why the fence yes. is there, don't tear them down. Let's talk about why we have these fences. Yeah. No, it's great. And I, I feel like it's Chesterson time for... Fence, sorry, Chest, not Overton, Chesterson. I was going to say, Overton window yeah, is Overton, where... Chesterson's fence. Yes. Yeah. So I do feel like it's time for me to um, really try to understand things a little more deeply because we are being information overloaded in the media and it's very easy to spend your time in the 24-7 news cycle and really not have any grounding to evaluate the crap they're feeding us from the left and the right. And uh, we're competent. We are grownups. We can have these conversations. We can think this stuff through. It's been, That's why I'm such an advocate of textualism. Not because there aren't nuances, but I, I will tell you, if you read this constitution, which will not take you long, you will be 80% 80, 80 to to full comprehension of it just, just by reading it. It's, it's interesting how many people take common law in law school but never actually read the Constitution. They just right, and they constitutional law and law school is 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 like gobbledygook. They're just trying to tell you, trying to convince you that administrative law and um, policy making judges and stuff is a okay. Well, maybe that's just because where I went to law school, but. Um, yeah, I don't think you end up necessarily closer to the truth by having a bunch of Ivy League constitutional law professors teach you about the Constitution. So, But we are close to the truth having Eric Buchanan teach you about the Constitution. So I cannot wait for next time. We're going to do, I want to do the Articles of Confederation. I guess we have to talk about Lochner. And let's see, I think I had a couple of uh, more in my notes here. So I think we're, we've got, we've got, we're going to make another date soon. Absolutely. Thanks a million, Eric. Thank yeah, you. this was fun. So, all right. See you next time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Monica. Good seeing you.